Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Dave. And I'm Carrie. And thanks for joining us. For today's episode, uh, we had the chance to talk with Emmy Kegler about her book, One Coin Found, How God's Love Stretches to the Margins. In addition to talking about the book, Emmy shared her experience of tension with the Bible and the Christian story, specifically in the ways scripture has been used to marginalize people based on sexuality, race, or beliefs. She hopes that through her book, and we hope through this episode, people who have had a broken relationship with the Christian story might have the chance to find something that is liberating, holistic, and healing within it. Emmy also challenges us to better care for those who have been cast aside through rethinking our understanding of Scripture, reminding us that coins only disappear if the person who is responsible for recognizing their worth fails in their duty. And with that, welcome to Episode 94, One Coin Found. Welcome to the Sandbox. So we are sitting here today with Emmy Kegler. And to start things off, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. Uh, my name is Emmy Kegler. I serve as the pastor of Grace Lutheran in Northeast Minneapolis. And I live in East St. Paul. And my wife is a veterinarian. We have two dogs and one cat who are the light of our lives, along with our niece who lives in Michigan. I mean, the rest of the family is also the light of our lives, but really, like, she's <laughs> a year and a half. She's the cutest thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my calling into ministry particularly has revolved around me understanding my own sort of enveloping into the divine and then how that has also then sent me out into the world to find others who are in deep need of that re-welcoming, that re-inclusion mm-hmm. that has often been denied them for a multitude of reasons. Mm-hmm. What would those reasons be? Um, so primarily a lot of the work that I do uh, is within the LGBTQIA community, of which I am a member uh, since I have a wife. But also a lot of that work has then taken me into questions around racial um, disintegration within the church, mm-hmm. around ableism and accessibility within the church, and also around different ways that church structure has enforced theological concepts as requirements and then started to shut people out whenever they had questions. Mm-hmm. And you came to that, this is a passion of yours, this is your calling, and, and how did you come to this as your, as your life's work? I was raised in a family that always encouraged questions, so that was, came very naturally to me. But through teenage years, high school, college, I kept finding myself drawn into ministry and then also pulling away from it. And where I found that really where I found space was made for that constant push and pull was within the Lutheran church. It's how I ended up being a Lutheran pastor rather than some of the other denominations that I dabbled in along the way. So a lot of my call to ministry has been about recognizing the work that God's been doing in my own life and then having that open my eyes, wake me up to the way that work is longing to be done in others' lives. So then my work becomes, how do I create the space for God to do what God will do? So... This calling that you have in this ministry that you're doing, what are the different facets that you have found that have been welcoming to people? Where, how have people found welcome in your ministry? What have you done to reach out to people? One of the best gifts that I inherited just from the church that I've been called to, I've been serving at Grace for three and a half years, is it's an old elementary school building that was refurbished by three churches that um, – 
merged and became one single congregation and then bought out the building and refurbed it into a community center, which means we're already in a building that is almost entirely handicap accessible. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to worry about doing any building updates or about how to negotiate stairs. Like we have elevators already built in. Everything on the first floor is flat. There's handicap parking very clearly marked in certain areas. There's wheelchair ramps from those areas. So we already had a great footprint to work with. That's already been really helpful for us, both with bringing in existing members from the congregations. The three predecessor congregations were aging. So that need for um, wheelchair accessibility or walker accessibility was already there. But then it's also been really helpful for us as we've moved into greater accessibility for people who are sight impaired or blind and for people who are younger but dealing with issues of mobility. So that's been a huge space that we've still been growing into and still seeking to understand better um, how I, as an able-bodied person, can better lead and interpret in that space to make sure we have really stepped into that idea of creating a space where all are welcome, especially those who experience disabilities that either often restrict them from society or, conversely, um, disabilities that aren't as visible. And how do we adapt to that as well? Mm-hmm. So that's been one of the really big parts of what we do. The second thing, um, we have a, we've been having for two and a half years now an evening gathering of LGBTQ people who identify as Christian or who are coming out of Christian traditions and trying to figure out what to do with their faith. Mm-hmm. And a significant amount of those people are coming out of uh, more evangelical or fundamentalist traditions than our very Lutheran church. And so what that has invited us into is both a better understanding of our own theological convictions because of the way they come into tension with, in, you know, incoming evangelical or fundamentalist or mm-hmm. conservative concepts. Suddenly the gifts of Lutheranism that have sort of been taken for granted in our congregation become much more clear mm-hmm. as to how they can really break open scripture, um, improve on scriptural interpretation, create better spiritual balance in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And second, it also helps us clarify some of the practices that we've been doing without thinking. Um, we did a whole sermon series around the creeds because I had people who would come to me after morning worship and say, why are you telling me what I'm supposed to believe? Because they were coming out of traditions where someone from on high, their you know very powerful church leader, had told them, "This is what you must believe in order to be part of our church." And it was not the creed; it was you know something that was structured from within that church or within that denomination within the last hundred so years. And so, presented with the creed, they said, "Look, I've already walked away from a church that does this. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to have you do it to me again." <laughs> and I had to go, "Oh, okay. This is this is different." But also that's a really interesting perspective on the creeds that most mainline, you know, cradle to grave Lutherans wouldn't ever think about Mm -hmm. of like, you're telling me what I have to believe. Mm -hmm. And not only that, you're making me recite it out loud with people around me who (laughs) will notice when I'm not saying it. Like, this is weird. (laughs) And I went, oh, yeah, okay, it is weird. Um, Okay, (laughs) let's – so then that kicked off a whole sermon series on like let's Mm -hmm. talk about the the Mm -hmm. weirdness of that and make space for it and figure out what the creed has to say to us both in its historical context, in the traditions that have been built around it in the past several hundred years and then what it says to us now, including new interpretations of it. Mm -hmm. So that's been – you know, what we're finding is we have these two-way gifts, right? As new people are coming in, they're bringing gifts and that we're able to draw from and then improve our own, you know, our, our sort of original congregation's spiritual life. And then also the gifts that we have as a congregation are able to nourish people who are newly coming in. It's an alien concept to a lot of people. And I imagine God's an alien concept to a lot of people who might walk through your doors, uh, you know, and like, what is God? 
So when you talk about it, what are you talking about? Mm. I base it heavily in scriptural context, especially because for those people, and this is the majority of the congregation that I serve that are sort of newly adding into the congregation, the majority is coming out of conservative, fundamentalist, um, non-denominational evangelical context. So they're very familiar with God, they're very or with concepts of God, they're very familiar with the concept of Jesus. They're very interested in scripture, right? Because that has mm-hmm. been the basis for faith in their previous contexts. And it's the shared conversation that we have. You know, Lutherans, I can make other jokes about, you know, we, we have the connection of like Holden Village or when your church transferred over from the green hymnal to the new hymnal or anything <laughs> like that. But the common language between myself and these people who are newly coming into the door into a Lutheran church is scripture, And so I usually start there, and I especially start with the person of Jesus and the moves that God makes in Jesus to be liberative and to be reuniting. So how does Jesus set free? And also, what does salvation, um, which especially in the Gospel of Luke is a word that's used right along with healing or being made well, um, so the, the Greek word for salvation and the Greek word for healing, in uh, especially you can see this playing out in the Gospel of Luke, are the same word. And so I start talking about what if salvation looks like healing, not physical healing, because again, that's something else I start with, with like, I'm not expecting you to somehow perform physical healing or achieve a cure and prove your faith that way. What I'm talking about is what are the things that have deeply shaken the core of who you are and damaged the image of God within you? And how do we start Mm -hmm. drawing that out again? Mm -hmm. I especially see ways of doing that in the person of Jesus. I spend a lot of time talking about the incarnation and the miracles and the teachings. I pull away a bit from crucifixion and resurrection, or no, excuse me, um, I pull away a bit from crucifixion language because for so many people, the um, violence inherent in it and the violent sort of God image that has often been put on the crucifixion can be really destabilizing. Um, So we still work around that, but it's not one of the touch points I can hit on in a sermon as easily. I do talk a lot about resurrection. And in fact, um, since our Easter vigil last April, we now do as part of our communal worship, a time of sharing of new life. So we talk about where are we seeing new life and resurrection in our own lives. Mm -hmm. And for some people that's about, you know, who they are as LGBTQIA people. So people will get up and talk about like, I've finally started using the correct name and pronouns for myself at work. And people are being really, you know, accepting and you know, HR has worked with me to switch over my email address, and that looks like new life because mm-hmm. for the first time they're able to experience an internal healing, um, a sense of having the self united with the external self united with the community around them. Sometimes it's about things that are, you know, well, I've got a new job or, you know, a kid's lost a tooth and a new one's growing in, the things that we would think of as like, yes, also examples of new life. So it's beautiful to see this cross section of the way people are able to be opened up to and given space to talk about what hope looks like in their lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you recently wrote a book. I did. uh, Which uh, I actually haven't finished reading yet, but I know explores a lot of these ideas Mm -hmm. uh, and and also a little bit of your own story. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe tell us a little bit about that book and about what you learned uh, about yourself or, or about the work you're doing through that process. Yeah. Yeah, I was asked, I was approached by the woman who had become my editor at Fortress Press. And she said, we think, you know, we're looking for new voices and new publications. We think you might have a story in you. 
And I knew that they were asking and that I was being called to write a book about being gay and Christian. And you guys may not know this, but there are several other books already on the market about being gay and Christian. In fact, like we've now reached a point of almost market saturation where like Mm -hmm. Vicki Beeching, Amber Cantorna, Matthew Vines are all coming out in similar years. Mm -hmm. Um, Brandon Robertson, Austin Harkey's book, um, you know, like in the past few years, we've had Mm -hmm. an explosion of those texts. And I knew I didn't want to just write another book that did that, especially not another book that was sort of an LGBT apologetics of like, Mm -hmm. here is Mm -hmm. how we read the Bible. Please stop using it to hit us. We'll leave you alone if you'll leave us alone, Um, which is unfortunately what a lot of the LGBT community has been writing Mm -hmm. since really the 60s. We have um, books that are still in publication that just make this argument of the Bible in historical context, understood as a literary document, understood as part of faithful confession to who God is, does not have to always lead us to the only conclusion of homosexuality is sinful and you must identify with the gender you were assigned at birth. So I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to figure out if I'm if I'm being moved to write this story, both by an editor who's approaching me, but also by the sense of something inside me of telling a story, what's that story? What's, what's unique about that story? Mm-hmm. What's meaningful about it that someone else couldn't quite write? Yeah. And what I became really engaged with was stepping out of that sense of we have to do apologetics around the Bible and um, so apologetics or, or a, a defense of ourselves almost with the Bible or against the Bible and move instead into a, a sense of how do we develop another almost a positive relationship again with mm-hmm. the Bible. So that's been a challenge for me in my call to ministry and stepping into that. And so I looked back over 30 years of this progress that got me to where I am today, where I'm 34, and said, okay, what what are the key touch points in that journey of figuring out how to have a positive relationship with Scripture or a life-affirming relationship with Mm -hmm. Scripture, whatever sort of blank space you want to move or whatever you want to put in that blank space? How do I move out of keeping the Bible at arm's length because of mm-hmm. how often it's been used to wound and exclude not only LGBT people, but so many other um, marginalized or oppressed communities. How do I move out of that pushing away space into a space that is more reflective of the intimate relationship that I get to have with the word of God, who is Jesus? So that's what I tried to do in the book um, and tried to put it in a way that I especially was just saying, look, this this is what I've learned in my own life and experience and my own struggle, and I want to offer it forward for those who would find it helpful, mm-hmm. like another foothold on the climbing wall. I don't feel the need to create something, you know, whole cloth, brand new, and say, like, you have to build, like, this is now foundational theological work, you have to build on it. Mm-hmm. Rather, I just wanted to say, for those who are also experiencing this tension between who God made them as and how scripture has been used against them, here's my way forward out of that. You're welcome to let that story become part of your story. Mm-hmm. So you talk in the book um, about how you basically decided to fall in love with scripture, Mm. that you um, decided to read it and love it. And I'm curious what inspired you or what kept you encouraged to continue to read it? What was pulling you to to want to love scripture again? What made you not just leave it behind? Mm -hmm. It was coming right at the end of seminary, actually. So at that point, I knew I'd accepted this 
calling into ministry and was pursuing ordained ministry. And yet seminary didn't allow me to develop, you know, a I'm antsy about the words personal relationship with scripture, but didn't allow me to develop, you know, an intimate or an inspirational relationship with scripture. Mm -hmm. What it encouraged was like, let's pull the text apart. Let's start making theological claims about it. Let's analyze the Greek, all of which are very important and fed into what I ended up with. Mm -hmm. But they were not the only ways that I could relate to scripture and they were not spiritually feeding for me. Mm -hmm. So I had to get to a point of saying, I'm going to be stuck with this thing for the rest of my life. And if I don't figure out a way to develop a relationship with it that isn't every time I open it, I have, you know, sort of metaphorical scissors ready to tear it apart and make sure that Mm -hmm. I can survive engaging with it. I have to figure out a way forward. And the only, I mean, it wasn't that I sat down and thought, okay, the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if I just truck through the Bible in 90 days. It was just um, that friends of mine from, before seminary, we're doing a 90-day read of the Bible. And I said, okay, great. I'm going to join in because otherwise I'm going to quit within three days. Like I'm going to get tired. (laughs) You know, um, partly because trucking through 16 chapters, which is about the average I had to do a day, trucking through 16 chapters of the Bible a day gets to be sometimes a real drag when you're stuck in like the histories or when they're doing the genealogies and you're just going like, I don't care. Game of Thrones did this much better. Can we move on? (laughs) (laughs) But also because... Um, for for a ver- for many years, every time I opened scripture, I could feel my shoulders going up around my ears mm-hmm. and feel my body tense up. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I knew I ha- I know I have to have a system that I'm accountable to, so that something will keep pulling me forward, or I will quit. Mm-hmm. And so that was um, that was hugely formational for me. And it also helped that you know it was the summer after seminary, and I was just like, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just waiting to find out where I'm going to be sent. <laughs> so I'm just gonna go for long bike rides and truck through chapters of the Bible while I'm sitting in a park somewhere where I can't, you know, run to the library and go like, okay, but what does this Greek word mean? Or what is this particular verse? You know, how has Walter Wink interpreted this? Like, no, you can't. You just have to sit there and deal with the way it is Mm. as is and figure out, can I create a relationship with scripture out of that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you say to somebody who says ancient words? What does it matter? Mm -hmm. What does any of this really matter for us today in 2019? Mm-hmm. One of the most important things that I notice when people say to me those are ancient words and they have no meaning for us today is the antagonism or the hurt that's sometimes behind them. Mm-hmm. So there are certainly people that do that because they just have an antagonistic personality and they're seeking to be troublesome. And I deal with people like that, especially online, quite often. <laughs> but there are a lot of people who say that because it's the only way they've found protection from the book. Right. The only way that they've found freedom from what scripture has been used to do to them is to say, like, you know what? This is an old book made by a bunch of old men wandering around a desert. I don't care. Like, it's not real. You know, it's, you know, Kierkegaard is more real or um, Nietzsche is more real or Buddha is more real. And um, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So let's talk about that. Like, let's address the question from that angle of like, let's talk about the pain rather than arguing, you know, theological or philosophical Mm -hmm. concepts, because that's not where they're actually speaking. Like the question is coming out there, but where the actual concern is, is so much deeper and maybe more Mm -hmm. raw. So then I can try to go into that raw space and say, yeah, okay, let's talk about that. And sometimes it's about, you know, it's it's less about it's an ancient book and therefore 
unusable, but it's a book that's been misused mm-hmm. so often. What do we do with it? Okay, let's pursue that question. Let's talk about the ways it's been mm-hmm. misused and whether or not we can still find treasure within it. Um, sometimes it's about, well, people just made it up. Like God didn't actually write this. It's just made up by people. Okay, great. Let's pursue down that road and talk about if fiction has the capacity to bear truth, which is a really shifting question, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. almost every single person can say, yes, there's a book that I read as a child or as an adult that shifted my perspective that has formed me for who I am. And it's not technically, quote unquote, true. Mm-hmm. And yet it's a book that I turn back to for inspiration. It's a book that has helped me connect with communities. It has helped me understand myself better um, and improve the way I act in the world. And even though it's not technically, quote unquote, true historically mm-hmm. or or philosophically, it has meaning for me. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that's when I tackle it. And I do openly admit to the fact that the book is ancient, that it's written in ancient languages, that nobody speaks quite in the same way anymore, that it's made in ancient times um, and in times that archaeologically we really don't have as much access to as we'd like. We don't know very much about biblical times. We've had to really extrapolate from a lot of the content happening around it. I mean, and that's essentially true up until you get into the 21st century when we were able to document literally everything happening all the time <laughs> to our to the great chagrin of everyone around us. <laughs> but I do talk about if if the experience of people in ancient times of the divine, whatever that might be, right, the, uh, and we come up with different names for it across theological and philosophical practices, we talk sometimes right now about like the universe, right, having a sort of positive draw or a positive drive to it. Um, that's sort of the common parlance right now. Um, but the idea that there is something more than the physical world has always been with us. And so I think we can attend to the way that shows up in ancient times, you know, four to 2,000 years ago, and then start asking, what about this is consistent with what we are experiencing or hoping to experience today? What about it is helpful? What about it is liberative if we assign it meaning? I think that's much more interesting to me than than trying to convince somebody like, no, just because it's ancient doesn't mean it's not useful. Mm-hmm. It's rather more like, let's get at what's deeper under that conversation and mm-hmm. find out what are the things that would connect a person to a liberating reading of scripture, to an inspirational in the in the true sense, that word meaning um, to breathe in, right? And we, we sometimes use that in the, the reading of or the understanding of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit breathes into us. And that's what inspiration looks like. How can I help people develop that kind of relationship with scripture and with their own, like, spiritual internal balance? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In speaking of the of scripture and what it can say to us, mm-hmm. um, just curious, what is your favorite scripture uh, passage story? And what meaning do you find in it? I mean, is it cheating to say it's the one I named my book after? (laughs) (laughs) So the book is named One Coin Found, and it's about the parable of the lost coin that we find sandwiched between the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the, the lost son or the prodigal son, which is really interesting because we've... We find other motifs for God as a shepherd in other places in scripture. And so that becomes part of the Christian vocabulary of talking about God as shepherd or Jesus as shepherd and us as sheep. And we find other examples of God as father throughout scripture. And so that becomes part of the common Christian vocabulary. We sing songs about God as father. We address our prayers to God the father. We don't necessarily 
find the connections into other stories in scripture where God is a woman. That isn't that there aren't any. There are plenty, um, particularly the prophet Isaiah talks about God as a midwife or as bearing children. Um, Deuteronomy talks about God as a mother eagle. There's lots of different parallels where both male and female images for God are put together, both in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New. Jesus himself says, I wish I was a, a hen that could gather Jerusalem under her wings. And yet somehow that language doesn't seep into Christian vocabulary. Mm-hmm. We don't mm-hmm. have a multitude of songs about God as a woman. We don't have, you know, we have the king of love my shepherd is, but there's no like the queen of hope a sweeping woman is. Now, there might be a few reasons for that in Christian tradition. Sidebar, the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> where, where metaphors that were considered female or weak were, were sidebarred um, or sidelined. But what I love about that particular story and that particular sandwiching of God as a a woman sweeping and looking for a lost coin is that coins can't get lost on their own. Mm -hmm. Coins are lost because those who were responsible for them mislaid them. So especially in the community that I work with in the um, in LGBTQ communities and in other sort of marginalized communities about around identity, this sense of your choice is what took you away from God is a very dominant theme mm-hmm. in the churches that they're leaving. Mm-hmm. And so they will be compared to a wandering sheep or a black sheep or the prodigal son because these are mm-hmm. animals and people that can leave. They leave the fold, right? Mm-hmm. Coins can't do that. Coins only disappear if the person who's responsible for recognizing their worth fails in their duty. And that becomes Mm. a really transformative metaphor for saying to somebody, what if you're not a lost sheep who wandered away out of your own stubbornness? What if you're not a prodigal son who is wasting his fortune that he's, you know, stolen out from under the father's feet, really, um, in, you know, in in squandering and riotous living? What if you are a coin Mm -hmm. and God sees your value, but those who were in charge of you didn't? And even though those who were in charge of you, right, church leaders, family, whatever, missed your worth, God did not. And God is still looking for you. That's a huge flip and can start also reclaiming the other two stories and just and putting a more liberative spin on them in the sense of what if it doesn't have to be this transactional relationship where if you don't behave the way that we've decided God wants you to, you're out. Mm-hmm. And what if instead we can talk about a God who is endlessly pursuing us and longing to restore us to wholeness. My other favorite story right now is the book of Esther, because we were just doing um, another thing that we've been working on liberating ourselves from and liberating ourselves to is out of an anti-Semitic read of scripture Mm -hmm. and a supersessionist read of scripture. So what that means is for Christians coming to Holy Scripture, which we know as the Old Testament and the New Testament, We have a tendency to believe that we're the only ones who know how to read the Old Testament correctly on account of Jesus coming and revealing everything in the New Testament to us and then granting us power over the Jews who missed the mark because they didn't believe. This works when you look at the Gospels as, you know, conversations that are happening within Jewish communities under the oppression of Rome. It doesn't work so well 2,000 years later when Jewish people are still just terrifyingly oppressed, even within our own country where we're discovering, you know, that white supremacy and anti-Semitism is still very alive and well, but also, you know, within the shadow of the Shoah, the Holocaust of Mm -hmm. knowing that like, believing that 
white Christians have the only way of correctly understanding has been very dangerous for us. So we've been doing a lot of work around better understandings of uh, the Hebrew Bible, which is a, another way of saying Old Testament that is a little less about saying it's your, you know, this is old, we are new, <laughs> right. we, got mm. the, we got the better part of this. So we've been talking a lot about different stories that are liberative in the Hebrew Bible as well and reconnecting with that. Another division that we are sorting out is this idea that the God of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is much more violent and the God of the New Testament is the one who is loving and compassionate in Jesus. How do we start digging out those seeds? Because again, that that feeds into this idea that like we have the correct read. You all, you know, you all Jewish people have a violent God. And if you come over to our side, we will tell you all about love when Jewish people don't experience it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, the people who are standing outside of churches with giant protest signs that say, you know, your, your queer priest is a whore are not Jewish. <laughs> the people who are, you know, proclaiming the hatred of God from on top of soapboxes outside the twin stadium, which I still feel like is just the wrong audience. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I don't, <laughs> like I want to know how many converts they get. Um, maybe if there's a good night at, for the twins, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I've seen that where people stand and they just are like proclaiming the wrath of God to descend upon all humanity. They are almost always Christian. Mm-hmm. We're the ones who like to peddle the wrath of God. And yet we're the one, and yet there's also this, this underlying message within Christianity of like, but we have the New Testament and therefore we've been freed from this concept of a violent God. And I'm like, have we? Because I feel like we've doubled down. <laughs> so we've been working that out as well. And so one of the books that I've been using to work that out, um, especially in our evening worship, is the story of Esther. Mm-hmm. Because it's a, um, it's a story in Hebrew Bible Old Testament where the name God is not spoken and God does not speak. It's about people trying to figure out what do we do as a faithful community under oppression Mm -hmm. when we do not have the voices of the prophets or the voice of the burning bush or God descended upon a mountain. Who are we and what do we do in the face of oppression and violence? And it's a story very much about the messiness of humanity that we, you know, sort of try to clean up for a Sunday school where we say like, oh, Esther won the beauty pageant because she was so lovely. And you start reading the story and go, Esther got taken along with every other beautiful virgin into a king's harem and lived there forever. And that's gross and awful. And yet it's so true for how the world is, right? We don't have these perfect stories where faith somehow delivers us from the messiness and brokenness of the world, whether that's, you know, sexual, violent, um, physical danger, uh, you know, ideological oppression, we don't have a faith that delivers us out of that. What we have is a faith that asks us, what are we going to do in the midst of it? And that book, I think the book of Esther is so much more helpful for thinking about that because it takes that very modern tone of like, we don't have God with us in a concrete way. What do we do now? So speaking of the book of Esther, where, God, as you said, God doesn't speak, mm-hmm. um, and reading through your book where I'm sure as you have experienced, as we have all experienced times in our lives when God just feels silent mm-hmm. and far away, what were the ways that you uh, navigated those times or the ways that you continue to navigate those times when God feels silent or far away, isn't speaking to you? Mm-hmm. One of the most valuable things in the past six years of my life has been my participation in Al-Anon, which is the um, 12-step group for families and friends of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. So AA was formed first and then um, and developed 12 steps within that context. And then 
usually what would happen is men would gather for AA meetings and their wives, who had to drive them because they'd lost their licenses due to DWIs, would just be hanging out in the parking lot or in the kitchen and like making coffee. And then they would start talking with each other. Mm -hmm. And over time, this develops into a community of support for people who are going through their loved one's addiction. Mm -hmm. Because it turns out that a lot of us um, who are very close to addiction, and I grew up in an alcoholic family and have also um, had romantic relationships with people who struggle with addiction. Um, what it turns out, <laughs> when you're very close um, to somebody who's struggling with addiction, you start to develop other addictive tendencies. Mm. So Al-Anon is a lot about trying to work out that own, like dig out those roots in our own lives. And in particular, what has been deeply helpful to me in times when I have felt lost or without direction has been going to 12-step groups and hearing what others have done at the same time when it really feels like a hurricane has hit their lives or when they are living in the aftermath and going like, the choices that I've made are a mess. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't know how to move forward. And one of the core concepts within that is this idea of doing the next right thing. Mm. So instead of trying to figure out what do I do with the entirety of my life, which is, you know, a terrifying question <laughs> most of the time. Just slightly overwhelming. <laughs> Just, um, even if you're in, you know, the best of mental and physical and emotional circumstances, that's an overwhelming question. Mm. So instead, what do you start the, – the rephrasing and the reframing is to start thinking about what's the next right thing? What can I do in the next five minutes that is a right thing? And that phrasing of right is helpful because it kind of helps delineate between like what are some of the things that I might want to do but would not be helpful for me, right? Mm. To like to lose my temper, to fly off the handle, to do something, you know, self-destructive or other destructive. And to say, okay, but for five minutes, we're going to set that aside and try something – that is more right in the sense of what is more in tune with who I am, who I want to be, and what the world needs. That's been hugely formative for me in the times when I feel like God is silent or I'm not sure what I'm doing with my life or I think I've made a giant mess of my life. Mm. I can't tackle all of that at once, but what for the next five minutes can I do as if I was a healthier person, as if I felt stronger or more courageous? What would be the next right thing for me to do? Mm -hmm. So tell us about your book and... It was released recently, right? Yeah. One Coin Found, How uh -huh. God's Love Stretches to the Margins, came out in April this year. How has it been received? I mean, that April. I mean, you've had mm -hmm. you've had a chunk of time now. How has it been received? You've had some book launches and, and, and different people have been reading it and responding to it. Uh, how has it been received? Um, I've had really positive reception so Good. far, which has been really great. And especially for people who, I mean, who the, the, the audience was intended to be, which is great and also interesting. Sometimes authors, because now I'm part of this community of authors who talk about the process of writing and, and trying to figure out what our audience is. Sometimes authors find that their book is intended for a particular audience and then ends up resounding with another kind mm -hmm. of audience that they maybe hadn't mm -hmm. imagined. And so far, I'm finding less of that and more of this assurance that I did set out to find or to, to speak alongside other people who have this tense relationship with scripture where they want to have a connection with it and yet through life experiences have not been allowed to have a positive or inspirational or affirmational experience of it. And that's where I'm getting all of this wondrous commentary where people say like your your book meant so much your book really changed my understanding of scripture your book um, helped me 
feel like I can be connected to God again. That has to be so rewarding. It's it's deeply it's deeply meaningful. Mm. Um, and it the, the book has done fine as far as sort of expectations from the publisher. Um, I've made back my royalties, which is very exciting um, and a bit unusual for our first publication. So that's great. And at the same time, um, when I was worrying about the release of the books, so this was back in April of last year. Um, I messaged the author of my foreword, Rachel Held Evans, and said, mm-hmm. like, I'm stressing out about sales numbers. Like, how do you, you know, disconnect from this? And, of course, like, she's a New York Times bestseller, so I don't even know why I asked her because she would have terrible advice about it. But <laughs> um, but I said, like, I, I don't know how to sort of keep my mind centered on, like, the original audience and not explode into worrying about numbers and popularity and all that kind of, like, Amazon rankings and all that. And she said, remember that the gift is – Anytime your story intersects with someone else's story and it means something to them. And that has been so helpful to keep thinking about, you know, individuals and communities and less about, you know, the numbers, the rankings, the ratings, whatever, but to think more about like just those small turning points that keep happening in Mm -hmm. individuals and communities in different parts of the United States, especially because the book's in English, but, you know, um, and, and how that can be part of a larger transforming of the world. It's giving the gift and surrendering the consequences. Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 Cool. You know, you me- you mentioned Rachel Held Evans, and I imagine sh- she might be one, but who are these influences who have just kind of fed you and inspired you to write? Mm-hmm. Rachel was absolutely one of them. Um, her book, um, Inspired in particular, was mm-hmm. really, really meaningful for me. That's, that's the last of her books that's been published, um, although I know they're working on releasing one that was in process. Um, Nadia's, uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber's book, especially Pastrix, her first, mm-hmm. was really helpful in modeling a way of being fully honest about who I was mm-hmm. and stepping into that. So rather than like trying to write like Nadia or trying to write like Rachel, like how do I write more like Emmy? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents, uh, my mom especially grew up loving uh, the writings of Anne Lamott. Yeah. And then um, with Anne Lamott, also Sarah Miles. So I think of those mm-hmm. kind of like the West Coast, the West Coast wisdom. Um, <laughs> and uh, so especially in that, that, that way of integrating theological reflection and personal experience and then internal reflection. I love the way that they do that and draw on so much of their life experience. And those are probably my, my top. Um, but then also... I have been deeply influenced by a lot of really excellent science fiction and fantasy writing and that idea of creating a world and figuring out how to pare it down to exactly the right number of examples and instances so that you can create a world that people feel fully immersed in but don't feel overburdened with the details. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I find Tolkien a little overburdening, (laughs) like a little too many, uh, a, a little too much about you know, how Elvish came to be a language and too many things about like which age came from which and all that. But I love sometimes the the sort of concise simplicity that you find in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, especially when you get into the later books. I love The Last Battle and the way that it draws clear parallels between the experiences of The Last Days of Narnia and then the, the book of Revelation without ever making those explicit, right? Mm-hmm. But then creates this entry point into better understanding the book of Revelation through a very concisely but expansively offered fantasy world. 
So although I don't have the capacity to write science fiction fantasy, at least not that I've discovered within myself, I love those models of like, how do you invite the reader to come fully into where you are without Mm -hmm. creating too much? So C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. Nadia Boltz Weber, Rachel mm-hmm. Held Evans, mm-hmm. I know there's a bunch more, but they're working through you in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form in, in, in this book, this first offering from you. Um, what do you hope for? What, I mean, like if, if, you know, somebody picks up this book next week now, mm-hmm. what do you hope that they get from this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I still have I have two hopes for the book. I still have that original audience of like people who've had a broken relationship with scripture for any reason to yeah. find the chance for something reunited. I do I, I'm also noticing um, and I'm hopeful for how this might happen, the book being offered as an example of the existence of a faithful queer Christian person because since so much of the content we've had to produce has been, defensive Mm -hmm. against scripture, there's been a lot of sort of pushback saying, well, you just think that because you you have all these defenses against scripture because you're still trapped in your sin and you don't have a positive relationship with scripture or with God or Jesus. And I think my my hope still remains. And I know that people have tried to use this. I just don't um, have a story yet of someone's individual transformation. But I think the hope would next be that somebody who is very suspicious of LGBTQ people within Christianity might pick it up and see this is a a person who identifies as queer and lives into that and also has a deep relationship with Jesus and with the Bible. And perhaps my belief that that kind of person can't exist was wrong. Our conversation about the parable of the last coin reminded me of Psalm 23. It's a poem that many people are familiar with, regardless of their religious background. It's that, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want poem. I've seen it painted on the walls of hospitals, cross-stitched onto wall hangings, and heard it recited many, many times. It's that one that people can often reach to in times of fear for comfort. It's the one that people hold on to. The poem ends with, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. And while that is a beautiful translation, it actually may be more accurate to say, surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. Goodness and mercy are not passively following the psalmist as one might interpret. Goodness and mercy are actively pursuing the writer as goodness and mercy actively pursues all of us. In our conversation, Emmy talked to us about how God does not give up on looking for us as the sweeping woman does not give up on looking for her lost coin. No matter who has failed to see our worth, who has misplaced us, God continues to pursue us, to find us where we are and rejoice when we are found. So may you know that you are worthy of being found when others misplace you. And may you know you are loved even when you feel lost. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. And a special thanks to Emmy for taking some time to talk with us. If you want to stay up to date with all things going on in the Sandbox, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and join us in the conversation. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it. There's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time. We'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the Sandbox.